0: All right. Well, let's go. Let's get. Let's get into the word here this evening. And uh, let me start by by praying, Father. We thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, to be here. What a gift! And uh, man, what a gift it is not just to be here amongst brothers and sisters, but to be able to open your word together. And God, I'm so excited about what you are doing here in the life of our church. This past weekend was a terrific time together. Even this morning, being able to be with the ladies. God, what a blessing to see so many studying your word. Father, we thank you for even the crowd here tonight, not only in this room, but in choir and in students and in our children. God, um, we're just so thankful for how richly you have blessed us. And as we look forward to things like Reach Sunday and how you have ordained that day in such a way that, that we can focus on our partnerships and how we reach the nations with the gospel, Father, we just thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And so tonight as we look to your word, Lead us, guide us, mold us, shape us, uh, help us to learn and to grow. All for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want us to remember where we are when we get to Genesis chapter 12. Last week, we talked about the Tower of Babel, and we discussed the, the making of the nations, the beginning of the nations, and them spreading out different languages, and kind of the beginning of modern history. Let me remind you, as I said last week, that that Genesis 1 through 11 is really asking the question that Genesis 12 through Revelation 22 will answer. It's asking the question of how will God redeem this mess that has been created of sin by humanity? How will he do it? And in Genesis 12, that answer starts to come to light. Now, if I could also remind you that back in Genesis chapter 3, I asserted to you what I believe is the thesis of all of Scripture. Remember, after sin had come, the Lord God comes and he speaks, and he pronounces his curses, as it said. And the first one goes to the serpent, the great disturber of God's peace in the garden. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here in Genesis 3:15, you find what we talked about is the first mention of the gospel, the first promise. It's not giving it in full. It's not telling us that. Hey, Satan, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my son. He's going to live perfectly. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be raised again. He's going to destroy you. That's not what he says. But what he does say is there's going to come one who's born of a woman who's from this line, and he is going to crush your head, serpent. You may wound him and bruise his heel, but he will kill you by crushing your head. And so as we walk through Scripture now, what we are looking for is that serpent crusher. Who is the one that's going to crush the head of the great disturber of God's peace? Who is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent? And as you do this, you start to see two lines form, two lineages Form, which, as I said, genealo- uh, Genesis is a genealogy. It's written in that way. And so that's why in chapter 4, you have the list, I mean, chapter 5, you have the list of 10 generations. Then you have Noah. That's why when you get to the end of chapter 11, you see the list of the peoples again. He's connecting the generations to show you there's coming one from born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And this line is continuing. Even through the disobedience during the time of Noah, he he saved Noah and his people and kept his promise. Even through Noah's failure, he has kept his promise through Noah's children even. And it comes in verse 27 of chapter 11. He says, now these are the generations of Terah. Now remember that these are the generations of are kind of section markers in Genesis. We've had these are the generations of God, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations of Noah. And now we have these are the generations of Terah. And he says, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of of the kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So he's connecting here the dots. He's going back, and Terah, you go back, and he's the son, and it lists out all of these lineage coming from Shem, who the line will continue through Shem. It comes through, and he lists it out. So he's connecting this back. If you read in Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, there's a genealogy of Jesus uh, in Luke's Gospel. When you have Matthew's, it begins with that genealogy. Matthew's Gospel begins with Abraham and goes all the way to Christ, Right? in Luke's gospel in chapter 4 that one goes starts from Christ and goes all the way back past Abraham to Adam And so when you do this, you list it all the way back to Adam, this lineage that continues proving that Jesus, of course, was in the line of Abraham just as he was in the line of David, and he is in the line of Adam. So it continues this line. He fits the bill of one who will be born of this woman, an offspring of her, who will crush the head of the serpent. And you can see how he connects all of these dots. It's important for this. There's another place that this happens That's important in the book of Ruth, just four little chapters. And the main point, ultimately, I think of Ruth, while it tells this incredible story of of Ruth and Boaz and her journey and how she came back uh, with Naomi and how God redeemed through Boaz, there's a little section at the end of chapter four where it connects, it connects uh, there all the way back to Jesse, uh, I mean, all the way back to Judah, to Jesse, which is connecting the line of David all the way back uh, uh, to to Judah in Genesis. So it's showing how this line is continuing. That's the point. We're looking for this serpent crusher who's coming in this line. And so here you have, at the end of chapter 11, everybody has has been scattered. There's no one who's seeking after God. There's no one who's looking for him, and, and you don't know what to do but that doesn't mean God's finished. God keeps his promise. And in the midst of no one looking for him, no one serving him, no one following him, God goes to this one Abram, who's in the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he calls him. And he calls him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now as we see that that picture unfold, remember, remember that... Uh, that as you see it unfold, it's progressive, if you will. So he doesn't tell us exactly everything from the start. He unfolds it one piece at a time. And the whole Old Testament is this unfolding, one piece at a time. If you go back to the first time I taught on Genesis, which I'm sure all of you have in your notes and right there in your memory, you remember I used the story of Bob Ross. Y'all remember me telling about Bob Ross? Y'all know who Bob Ross is? Right. The painter. In fact, there is a new documentary out about Bob Ross, and he died early of cancer in his lungs, never smoked, and they believe, this is kind of sad, they believe because of his method, it was from the paint thinner that he used his whole life. That's sad, isn't it? Should have wore a mask. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> Don't get mad at it. But as he paints the picture, it's that's kind of what's happening in the Old Testament. Every stroke in and of itself just doesn't make much sense maybe. It's just one stroke. But when you add it into the picture, it starts forming a greater picture that's beautiful. The Old Testament is that. Every story is another stroke in the painting. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament comes, that painting becomes clear that what the Old Testament has been painting all along is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here it becomes clear. So every stroke here in the Old Testament, every story, everything you do is another brush stroke in a painting that's going to demonstrate the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And so here in Genesis 12, what you see is you have that first promise there's coming one who'll be a serpent crusher. We'll see in, through Noah that God's go, how God is going to redeem this and not destroy it like he did, right? And then you see again right here in Genesis chapter 12 a picture of how that's going to look. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 are some of the more important verses, uh, if you weight them or not, is some of the more important verses in the Old Testament. Because he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, God has no people, they've been spread out, they're everywhere, and so God is going to make a people, Right? And so he calls Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is called the... Covenant made with Abraham, and we'll see how this is formed over the next few chapters. But what does he say to Abram here? He gives three promises. He gives three promises I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Remember, we talked about last week what is it that's how do we define the kingdom of God? How do we define the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? The kingdom of God is defined. By God's people in God's place under God's blessing, rule and blessing, right? And so God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Anytime you look through the Old Testament, that's what you're looking for. Where are God's people? Where is God's place and under God's rule and blessing? And in the Old Testament, a lot of things are tied back to that. Like when Israel, God's people, sin against God, what happens? Their place is taken away from them. It's taken away from them and the exile happens and, and how has God's blessing come? And the, the Old Testament is going to lay all of that out. But here, here he gives it to Abram. He gives the promise to Abram. And what I would offer to you is what we see in these three promises is an outline of the Old Testament. It's an outline of the Old Testament. By the end of Genesis, you find God's people are in Egypt. It's, it's just to give you all a heads up because some of you may not be here. You, when we start in Genesis, when we get to the end, you started with Adam and Eve in a wonderful God-blessed garden. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing, right? In his place, in a glorious paradise garden. It ends with God's people in Egypt, right? In a foreign land. And so now it ends there. But when Exodus begins, the gap between Genesis and Exodus is some, does anybody know? 400 years. 400 years. We won't wait that long to get to Exodus, I promise. The gap there is 400 years. And do you know how Exodus starts? Exodus starts by discussing, one, there's a new Pharaoh and the people aren't, aren't treated well. But it also says, So God dealt with the midwives, they're talking about the babies, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, they gave them families. Ultimately, verse 7 of chapter 1, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew in seemingly so strong the land became filled with them. In other words, by the time Exodus starts, one of the promises is already fulfilled. They've become a great nation. Literally, the language is the same as Genesis 12.1. The people of God became a great nation. So the first part of it is, through Genesis, how did they become a great nation? Getting into Exodus. You see that happen. It's kind of the outline. The next part is they're going to receive a land. Well, from Exodus all the way through Joshua, what happens? It shows how the people of God who become great enter into the land that God has promised for them. So from from, um, Exodus 1 all the way through Joshua is how they get the land, the second part of the promise. And then the third part of the promise is how they will be under his rule and blessing. And what we find out is God's rule and blessing will will come through who? God's king. And in Judges, we see the need for a king and how blessing does not come, and and God raises up judges so they can be blessed for a time, and we see that, and when we see how they appoint Saul trying to be the king, and that doesn't work out, then David comes. And when David comes, you see the prosperity of Israel becomes clear, so God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing through God's king, right? And so what happens here is these three promises become the outline of how the Old Testament will lay out how it's going to play out. The rest of the Old Testament will demonstrate how God kept his promise to Abraham. He's going to make his people great. He is going to give them a land, and he's going to uh, put them under his rule and blessing. And what we see in the Old Testament is that God fulfills all of these promises, yet the people do what? They sin, they rebel, and all of it's lost. All of it's lost. Is it lost forever? Now we'll talk about that in a minute. But but what we'll see here is that this, these promises begin to define even more of a brushstroke or, or bringing even more focus into how God is going to redeem this mess. He's going to redeem this fallen humanity by creating making them into a great people, giving them a land that will be theirs under his rule and blessing. That's how he's going to do it. So you start to see it defined. Abraham has given that. Let's notice a couple things about it. One, of course, he says they'll make a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, he says. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very beginning, there's a couple things I want to note. Let's start with the bottom and work up, if you will. Of course, he's talking here about Abram and his offspring. He's talking about those who will come out. God is going to create a nation after his own name. He says this in Exodus. He says how this works. He's going to create a nation, the nation that will become Israel. Remember, Israel will become uh will become Abram's grandson, Jacob will become his name, and Jacob will have 12 kids, uh, a little bit more, a couple more, but he'll have 12 kids or 12 tribes will come from him, right? And so that will be the nation of Israel. And so here, this is who the people are. The Hebrews will be the nation of Israel. That will be the people that, that are created in the for this purpose to bring about the serpent crusher, to fulfill the promises of God. And so we see that taking place, but notice that it was never meant for God just, this is a very important point in theology, by the way. It was never meant for God just to bless Israel. The promises were never just about Israel. Does everybody hear what I'm saying like this? Because he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all the families will be blessed through this. The promise the, the nation, some people have taught throughout church history that the church, the Gentiles, that would be us, I believe most everybody in here, some people have taught that we're plan B, that God came to Israel and Israel through Jesus and Israel rejected him and therefore he decided, well, if y'all going to reject, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, right? That's never been the case. We're not plan B by any stretch of the imagination. If we were, still praise God that he saved us. But from the beginning, the nations have been in mind by God. The design from the very beginning was to redeem this list over here in Genesis chapter 10. The design from the very beginning was all of those who've been spread out, right, So he was going to create a great nation, Israel, so that he can redeem all of those nations that were spread out and sent across the earth. He can call them back to himself. So the very beginning, the nations were at mind. Please don't forget that. Please understand that from the beginning, God was going to call the nations to himself, and he was going to use these people that he had raised up out of Abraham and his offspring, he was going to use this nation to bring about the Savior that would bring the nations back to himself. When you read the Old Testament, the nations were from the beginning, the design of God. From the beginning. And here it even goes back into the very heart of the promises. All of these we just listed in chapter 10, all of these we saw through the offsprings of Noah, these nations that came up. God was designing a way to redeem them, to save them. And it will be through Abraham and his offspring. That's who it will come from. So the nations are here from the very beginning. Oftentimes when people understand this verse, they, they think that this means that, that we have to particularly support Israel, the nation today. I truly believe we should. I think it's good for politics and everything else. But I want you to know that I do not believe that's exactly what this text is teaching. I do not believe that's what this text is teaching. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. In fact, let's go ahead and do it now. I don't want you you to wait. I'll I'll let you wait on where our new partnership is, but not this. Let's go. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. There's a lot in all of this. And this is, I mean, y'all are probably going to have to go back and listen to this like seven or eight times. One, just because you want to. And two, because I'm talking fast. And three, because, man, there's a lot in this. But in Galatians chapter 3, you begin to see Paul working through this issue, all right? And I want, I want to point something out here. So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing... And he says, of course, up there in chapter verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law, he gets into this argument, but he says, We are justified by faith. So know, verse 7, know that though that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right? Everybody, everybody got what I'm saying? Just hold on to that. But what does he say down there in verse 16? He said, Now the promises, we're talking about Genesis 12, 1 through 3, okay? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Everybody knows that. We just Abraham. talked about that, right? Made to Abraham his offspring. It does not, Paul wants to make this a qualifier here. It does not say unto his offsprings. Does everybody see what Paul's saying? It doesn't say unto his offsprings as if there are many. It's not to his offsprings, it says, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, it is singular, who is Christ? Y'all see what I mean? What I'm saying is, for us tonight, as we look at this, these verses, while fulfilled in Israel in the Old Testament, we quickly see that Israel loses its place, right? It, it, it loses its spot because it fails to follow after God. And what happens is we may think that God, again, what is he going to do? How is he going to help? How is he going to redeem this? It may be over because Israel, I mean, Jerusalem, by the time you get to the end of Jeremiah and Lamentations, is burned to the ground. And and, and by the time you get to the New Testament, Rome is ruling over all of Israel. And and, and how how is he going to redeem this? And what we learn is The one who will fulfill all three of these promises to Abraham is not the people of Israel, if you will, but it's the one who is truly Israel, Jesus Christ himself. He's going to fulfill them all. Who is God's people? Jesus is God's people. Where is God's place? Jesus is God's place. You don't meet God in a temple anymore. We don't meet God in a building at all. We meet him in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And where is God's blessing found? It is found for those who trust in Jesus. And if you bless Jesus, you will be blessed. And if you curse Jesus, you will be cursed. And all the nations will be cursed in his name. Does everybody get what I'm saying? It's in Christ that all of these are fulfilled. Yes, they're fulfilled partially through Israel as we come, but there's a greater trajectory here in the word that Jesus is the one who is going to fulfill all of this, Paul says. So the ones who are truly Israel are those who by faith believe like Abraham believed. They trusted in Jesus. When they see him coming, that's the serpent crusher. That's the one who's going to redeem. That's the one who's going to fulfill all the promises. And now you're a child of Abraham if you trust in the one who came from the womb of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what Paul's point is. All of these things have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. All of them have been fulfilled in him. And now who is true Israel? Those who believe in Jesus by faith. That's who it is. And so for Paul, he's tying it back to say, this is important for you to know that the promises of God are found in Christ. That's what we've learned before, right? Second Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And so the promises of God are found in Christ. So for Abram here, he's sitting there in the Ur of the Chaldeans. He's got his Family with him, he's got his nephew Lot, and he's going. We're going to find out that's going to become an interesting little little character. We got his nephew Lot. We got he's wandering around, and God comes to him and says, "It's you, it's you. I'm going to use you to bring about salvation for my people from the nations. It's you. Here's what I want you to do." And then we see, as God gives him the promises, He calls Abraham to go. Let's note again, just like Noah, verse 4 of Genesis chapter 12, so Abram went. Now, I'm going to say Abraham, and it's going to be Abram. Y'all know he's going to change his name in a little bit, okay? it's the same person. Y'all just bear with me because sometimes it gets, get mixed up. So he calls Abram out of the earth of Chaldeans, and he says, I'm going to use you to make a people that will bring the serpent crushers to redeem the nations, right? So what he's ultimately doing, he gives him the promises, and he says, I'm going to call you, or Abram. I'm going to call you, and so Abram went. We see quickly again the call of God to someone, and their response is what? Obedience. Unquestioned obedience. And so ultimately, they become example for us in this. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he's not a spring chicken, you know what I'm saying? If you notice, his dad, didn't. he lived to be 200. So the ages of coming down, you know, nobody's 900 anymore. Post the flood, we're starting to get back to where we we kind of understand some ages, if you will. Abram took Sarai, his wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moray. And at the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. So remember How this works? Just the chapter before, we found out about the Canaanites, didn't we? We found out that they were ones who had been who had uh, committed some sort of sin against the Lord through Canaan, and now they would be cursed, and they would be servants to their own people. So we all remember I told you how that. That story is in there to teach us as the people of God are going to go into the promised land. Who are these people in the promised land? They're the ones who had sinned against God and had cursed and were cursed by God. And so God was going to use the people to carry out his judgment on them. Remember, this is Moses writing as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, writing these things. And so here you see Abram, he's in the land and it's filled with Canaanites. It's filled with Canaanites. They lived there. And the Lord says, the Lord says, here is where your offspring will dwell. I'm going to give them this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. That means the word means house of God, Bethel, and and pitched his tent. You got to be careful how you say that with Bethel on the west, and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. So here's Abram, he's in this land, God has made a promise to him, and and, and the Lord looks at him and says, this is your place, this is your land. It's full of Canaanites, it's full of other people living there, but this is the land I will give to you. It will be this promise to Abram, it'll be this promise to Abram that the people of God will remember forever. As they pass down their oral tradition, they know where their land is. They know what God had promised. And so as they are heading back to the promised land, they know that's the land that God had told them would be theirs. Here is where that promise is. And so Abram is wandering through this land, and God says, This is yours. Notice a couple things. One, Abram was obedient to God. God called him and he went. God called him and he went. Notice also that Abram didn't call upon the Lord, right? God called upon him. The one who initiates the promise and salvation is the Lord God himself. So the initiation, there's nothing in this story that tells us that God looked at Abram and said, hey, that'll be a good guy to lead this thing. There's nothing in this story that tells us that God looked at Abram and said, he's got it all together. He's real smart. He's a great speaker. You know, he's a good, he's a charismatic leader and a great speaker. We'll make him be the one. In fact, as you get on reading, there's a lot of things in this story that says it shouldn't be Abram, right? One, he's older. Why wasn't it Lot? Why didn't God choose Lot? You know, Lot was younger. He was a nephew. Why didn't he choose him? Why did he choose Abram? He's older. In fact, you find out that Abram's wife is what? he already told us that. Now, does that make any sense to us? God is saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Never mind the fact you're 75 years old and your wife can't have kids. I'm going to make you into a great nation. So we see in this the the, the sovereignty of God in calling Abram. Abram didn't seem to be rightly qualified. Abram didn't seem like he had it all together. It looked like he was past his prime, and it looked like him and Sarah and their relationship was not the ideal one to start a great nation from. So you can kind of guess why Abram had a little trouble with this idea a little bit later, and why Sarah, y'all remember what she did? She laughed, you know what I'm saying? What in the world are you doing? But it testifies to the sovereignty of God because he chose them because he wanted to, right? And he called them out because that's, his, that's the one he wanted. So there's nothing that qualifies Abram for this. In fact, everything says it shouldn't be him. In this then, we recognize that the salvation that God does is simply by God's great grace, his mighty power and his great grace. But what's, Abram, what's Abram's proper response to God's great grace in his life? Obedience. If God is going to be gracious to you, then what should you do? You should obey. You should obey. And so it is for all of us, by the way. Just to to say, if we have salvation, we recognize that there's nothing special in Josh Powell at all that I should receive salvation. It's simply God's grace that it has come to me. It's simply God's grace that I was born in a family that believed the gospel already and taught me the gospel, right? I didn't choose my parents. And if they're listening today, I would have. But it is simply by God's grace that God put me in that family that knew the gospel. It's simply by God's grace that God calls me to be born in a country where you have freedom to proclaim the gospel, right? I didn't choose my country, but God put me here where I could hear the gospel and hear it proclaimed. And it is really grace that he calls me to be born in South Carolina, which is his closest part to heaven. Greenville, I mean, that's part of it. And so we see all of these things are not anything I've earned or anything I've done. It's just God's grace in my life. And when I recognize that he's helped me to be born in a a wonderful place to live that has freedoms that I can hear the gospel from my grandparents and my parents, and I can believe and be raised up under the nurture and admonition of the Lord where the word of God was read in my house every day. Those kind of things that he's given me, what's my own response? Especially when I see that he's called me to himself and I was dead in my sins and he made me alive and he has given me all the rich blessings of heaven what should be my proper response obedience where would you send me tell me where to go tell me what to do I owe you everything and that's exactly what you see with Abram nothing qualified him for this task in fact everything about him showed it shouldn't be him but God still called him and Abram's response was right Abram went as the Lord had told him. May it be for all of us. May it be for all of us who've experienced God's grace. May it be for all of us who know the salvation of the Lord, that what he calls us to do, we do. And we follow. Not only that, we see another thing about this. What does Abram do quickly? He learns that what's the proper in this following the Lord is not just his life, but his worship, right? He goes, he builds an altar, and he worships. Everywhere Abram goes, he claims that spot for the Lord God Almighty who called him. He builds an altar and he begins to worship. Abram quickly, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, where there were a polytheistic society, recognizes that who I really owe my duty to is the Lord God Almighty. I'm going to worship him. We must follow the Lord. We must worship the Lord. I know those two things go together, but it's it's like that old hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way, right? Y'all remember that one? Trust and obey for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Those two words, trust and obey, always go together. If you trust the Lord, you're gonna obey the Lord. If you believe, you're gonna follow, right? Right? It doesn't work in Scripture to say you believe in Jesus Christ and not follow him. They qualify each other. Does that make sense? If you're going to follow him, it's a testimony that you believe. If you believe, it's a testimony that you will follow. You cannot, believe is an action. It's not just some intellectual assent to a couple rules or a few doctrines. It is a belief that changes, molds, and shapes us. To to trust in the Lord means you will obey the Lord. Those two things go together. They go together. So if you believe, you're gonna follow. If you believe, you're going to pursue after him. And so Abram demonstrates that I trust him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to to offer up sacrifices to his name and worship him, and I'm going to follow him. But we also see even he's doing this as he's a pilgrim. He's a wanderer. One of my favorite books, and I I commend it to everyone. Um, One of the the best-selling books of all time is the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And I recommend it to you all. And in that, Bunyan kind of defines what a pilgrim is. What a pilgrim is. He said, first, a pilgrim wears different clothes. Pilgrim wears different clothes. If any of you have ever been to a different country, you'll recognize that they don't necessarily dress like us all the time, right? Different cultures have different dress. And so... What he's saying is when you step into a place that's different, you're going to look different. You're going to wear different clothes. A pilgrim wears different clothes. A pilgrim speaks a different language, Bunyan says. A pilgrim wears different clothes. A pilgrim speaks a different language. And a pilgrim holds different values than those around them. But what he means by this and what Bunyan says, he says a pilgrim is not a drifter, but someone who has left their home for a purpose. And here, Abram is a pilgrim. He's in a foreign land, in a foreign place. He looks different from everybody. He speaks a different language, but he has a purpose. And that purpose is demonstrated by the fact that he goes into that foreign land with that different language and those different clothes, and he builds an altar, and he claims that space for the Lord God Almighty. He has a purpose. The reason why that's important. Is because the New Testament, Hebrews chapter eleven, tells us, and Peter tells us that those who are children of God, those who have been born again, what does they what do they call us in this world? Pilgrims, sojourners, wanderers. Right? Those of us who have been born of God, as we travel through this world, we're the same. We are pilgrims in this world. This place is not our home but we have one that has been promised to us, right? By the way, where is God's place now? Heaven itself, right? That's where he is, and he's claiming this place, and soon the earth will be filled with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It will be filled with this. So from, the, from, from sea to shining sea, from the mountains to the coast, the glory of God will be here. He's claiming it for himself, and for us, we recognize that this world is not our home right now, and we are just strangers and pilgrims, as Peter says. So what does that mean? That means we wear different clothes. We are covered not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. We are covered by the blood of Jesus, and we should look different to those who are around us. Not just act different, but look different as we're covered by His righteousness. It means we speak a different language. We come with the language of grace and mercy and love. We come with the proclamation of good news. We come to bring light and speak that light into darkness. We are pilgrims and strangers by the fact that we look different, we speak different, and we have have different values. We don't cherish the things that this world cherishes. We cherish the things of God. We hold fast to what God loves and what God desires and what God wants for our life. And we hold those so tightly so that the world cannot squeeze them out of our hands or pry them from our very hearts. We hold fast to those things because we're like Abram here in Genesis chapter 12. We are pilgrims wandering through, but we're not just drifting through here. We have a purpose. And the purpose as we wander through is to claim every spot we can, just like Abram did for the glory of God, and for his name. We everywhere we go, we worship. I love that idea. I've, I've been, y'all know some of my story and some of y'all have been around the world. Uh, I've been in places, I, you, you know, you like to call the uttermost. If you if you get to some place and Coke is not there, you know you are as far as you possibly can go, just to let you know. And so you get in those places. Um, there's a little area in the place where we go, and the little, little village name was Rudy. Rudy was in the top of a mountain, it's a seven-mile hike to get there, right? And so it's in the top of the mountain. And as Rudy's in that mountain, there's 26 villages on the top of this mountain. About 25 years ago, a lady from Rudy, whose husband was the witch doctor the witch doctor of the village is the one who carries with them the religious duties. What that usually means is they ferment all the fruit and make it into alcohol and get everybody drunk and think that's the Lord or some God. And the witch doctor's wife got very ill. So they decided finally and convinced him because he couldn't do anything to help to take her down the mountain to the closest hospital. A little town had a hospital that had started by German Lutheran missionaries. And in that hospital, those German Lutheran missionaries had trained the nurses in the gospel. And they came down, and there were still some missionaries there. And when she got there, they recognized that she had cancer, and it was terminal, nothing they could do. They tried some things, nothing they could do. They told her the situation, They let her know what was going on, and they told her about Jesus. And there in that hospital, this lady gave her life to Jesus, recognizing him as her only hope. Now, their village is cut off from everything, no electricity, nothing. This village is cut off from everything, and so she looked at the doctors and said, Look, I want to go back. Can you help me get back? She's too weak, really. They called in some people, and they got her back to her village. When they got back to the village that she could only lay in her little hut, she laid there, and her witch doctor husband would come in yelling and screaming, upset, not knowing, and all she kept doing and all she knew to do is pray. And all she knew how to pray was she just simply said the name of Jesus over and over again. Didn't know what else to do. The witch doctor finally there and didn't know how to understand this, upset. He didn't know who Jesus was. She couldn't necessarily tell him exactly, other than, Jesus saved me. And finally, she died. She passed away. The witch doctor was so mad in this sense, he went down the mountain to find this hospital. He wanted to know who it was and who this Jesus was. And if it was Jesus that was the doctor, who was it, what happened? He went down, he went to the hospital. Going into hospital angry, he began to ask the nurses. He began to raise a ruckus about this. And man, this guys he's backwoods, you know. And so he's in there. Through the process, the nurses and the doctor sat him down and told him exactly who Jesus was. And the witch doctor gave his life to Jesus. I met that witch doctor Five years ago, he told me this very story. Today, on this mountain, amongst 26 other villages, the entire village of Rudy believes the gospel, right? And in that, in that, On that village, I'm sitting up there in the middle of nowhere. Coke hadn't even got to this place. Electricity's not even there. And we're sitting outside this beautiful setting in the mountains of South Asia, and we're sitting there, and these people had written their own praise songs because they didn't know what else to do. And they're singing praises to Jesus. What I'm telling you is this. Those brothers and sisters, and we need to know they are our brothers and sisters. In fact, We got more in common with them on the other side of the world than we have in common with those who are here that don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they sit there and they sing their worship songs and they praise Jesus. And you know what that witch, former witch doctor told me who's now the pastor of the village? You know what he told me? I said, tell me how God has blessed you since this happened. Tell me how God has blessed you. He said, you know, This is amazing, by the way. He said, there's no health care here, basically. So when a woman got pregnant, it was a death sentence. One out of every three died in labor. He said, all this mountain knows that. Since Jesus came into our village, we have not lost one lady in labor. Not one. And what's happened has been, and he's got tears rolling down. his so face. I got tears. Rolling. I don't even know why I'm not crying right now, but y'all, y'all know what I'm saying it's Wednesday night. He said, what's happened as we've been here on this mountain, people have found out in these other villages, and now they come to ask us, how are you doing this? How come you're not losing people to childbirth? And through that, we have told the story of Jesus. My point is, we're not made for this world, right? We're just strangers and pilgrims. And everywhere we go, we claim every ounce of dirt for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people go up there on top of this mountain for years that has been in darkness, for years that has been in darkness and has not known the light of the gospel. And there they proclaim it because they're wandering through this life with a purpose. And that purpose is they look different than the other villages around them. They're wearing different clothes. They speak a different language because they talk about grace and they talk about mercy and they talk about Jesus and they talk about light. And they have different values that they hold dear. And what God has done is he's taken their belief and their trust in him and he has blessed them. God's people are in God's place under God's rule and blessing, even right there, right? And so for us, we learn of those stories and we hear of them just as we hear of Abram and his faithfulness. And I hope to goodness, and I tell you these stories only because I want them to spur us on to love and good deeds, spur us on to more faithfulness and claim every ground for the sake of the gospel that we can possibly claim. Hold fast to all of it because God has promised us God has promised us that he will always have a people. He will always have a people. And his people will always have a place. And his people will always be blessed. And that his people come from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And all of those promises are right there in Genesis chapter 12. And all of those promises will be played out throughout the entire Word of God. And all of those promises will be played out throughout the entire history of mankind. And all of those promises will be played out and shown to be true throughout all eternity as God will always have a people and they will always be in his place and they will always be under his rule and blessing. So while we are waiting on that final day that is coming, we claim everything for him even now as his strangers and his pilgrims wandering through this world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for your word, for it is so rich and good. May we be faithful as you have been faithful, all for your glory and all for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday. We're going to do helmet and shield Sunday. That's two of them. You don't want to miss it.